So Jesus asked that you would use that passage and use these next few minutes to help us be more like you and follow you more. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, it is good to see all of you. I want to welcome those of you who are watching online, those of you at the 11 o'clock service, our middle schoolers, our high schoolers, all of you. You came to church even though it's sunny. That is awesome. There are extra points for you in heaven when, when you do that. Um, that's bad theology. Of, of, of all the things I do in my job, counseling, preaching, management, what do you think is the thing that I have been least successful at? The one thing in my job that I have only managed to do a few times, take 10 seconds, turn to your neighbor, and take a guess. Now. <laughs> take a guess. Management. No. <laughs> Any others? If you, if you are thinking in your mind, or if you said to your neighbor, managing to get people to apologize, to really own their side of a conflict, I've only managed to do that a couple of times. Uh, it has led me to believe that it is the greatest miracle of all, is reconciliation. Bigger than the Red Sea, that's just moving water around. But to get people to actually own, hey, here's my part in the conflict, that to me is a bigger miracle because it involves moving our hearts. Uh, now, let me do a quick definition of reconciliation. It's different than forgiveness. Forgiveness is when we let go of the bitterness and the anger. Reconciliation restores the relationship and we move forward again together. And sometimes that's not possible because, you know, maybe the person is abusive or something like that. But we can't use that as an excuse to reconcile where we, where we really can, which is most of the time. And we need reconciliation. We need it in our personal lives when we are at, in conflict with someone else. We also need it in our schools and in our workplaces. And we need it in our country right now. I just read that some married couples are getting divorced because they voted for different people in the last election. Race relations are strained, and in our civil life, we, we've just become very short-tempered with each other. Several years ago, I was flying to the East Coast to speak at a conference, and the flight was wildly delayed. And they kept saying, you know, we'll leave in 30 minutes, we'll leave in 30 minutes. And then three hours later, they canceled the flight, I'd missed my connecting flight, everyone around me was complaining, so I joined in. And at one point, uh, I went to get something out of my carry-on bags, and everything spilled onto the floor, and I got frustrated, and I started cramming everything back into the bag, saying words I don't normally say, like gosh and fiddlesticks. <laughs> and then this airline guy walks up to me, and he says, are you okay, sir? And I said, no, I'm not. And then he asked my destination, and I told him, and he said, well, what are you going there for? And I said, work. And then he said, well, what do you do? <laughs> I said, I work for an airline. No, I actually said, I'm a pastor. And then he said, what church? I said, that Lutheran one down the street. <laughs> actually, I said, I'm sorry, I'm behaving very badly. But I know I'm not alone because we've just become kind of an angry culture. So in this sermon, I'm going to address reconciliation on three levels. Personally, between us and another person. And then politically, with people we disagree with. And then race relations. And I'm just going to toggle back and forth between all three. And you guys are smart people and you're going to keep up and all of that. But first, let me ask the question, why should we even bother with reconciliation? I mean, it's hard. It can take a long time, sometimes years, to work through anger and bitterness. Why bother? Well, three reasons. The first is Jesus commands it. 
doesn't suggest it. He commands it. In this text that we read, he says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there, go and be reconciled to them, and then come back and, and offer your gift. In other words, it is so important that even if you are in church and realize you're unreconciled with someone, he says, get up and leave. So let's stand for the final song. Right, because most of us should probably go do that, right? But don't, because I'm not done with my sermon. Jesus says, even if you're at the altar. Now, there was only one altar in Israel. That was in Jerusalem, in the temple. So in other words, you maybe have traveled two or three days from wherever to get to Jerusalem. And right as you get to the altar, you go, oh, dang it. I just remembered. Fred's mad at me. Shoot. Now I've got to go all the way back. That's what Jesus is. That's how important it is, more important than worship. So reason number one to reconcile, Jesus commands it. Reason number two, Jesus commands it. Want to guess what number three is? <laughs> Jesus commands it. Like that should be enough, right? But we are a what's in it for me people, so let me give you a couple more reasons to reconcile. One, when we reconcile, we let go of bitterness and anger that consumes us. When Jesus says anyone who doesn't reconcile will be in danger of the fire of hell, I'm not sure that means just going to hell. I think it means when we don't reconcile, we carry a hell of bitterness and anger inside of us. Another reason to reconcile is it enables diversity, which makes life richer. But to have true diversity, there's going to be some times we've got to reconcile because we won't see things the same. But in businesses, in churches, decisions are better, plans are better when there's been a, a, a multitude of voices, male and female, young and old, different races, speaking into it because you get a broader picture of reality and you make better decisions. But also in our faith life, I have been so blessed by my black and Latino and Asian friends who have helped me see a bigger Jesus than if I just looked through at him through my cultural lens. Another reason, reconciliation is the heart of the gospel. I mean, that's what this cross is all about, between us and God and us and each other. And when we reconcile, as hard as it is, we experience God's presence. And then finally, we just get more joyful friendships, family, schools, workplaces. I mean, where would you rather be, in an in a office or in a school where everybody is always fighting and you're always on eggshells, or in a place where everyone is kind of laughing and supportive and there's friendly relations? Any two people who can reconcile are going to have a great marriage. Any group of people in a school or workplace who can reconcile are going to have an amazing work environment. Any country with a large group of citizens, say like millions of Christians, who supposedly should be good at this, any country with a lot of people who can reconcile is going to be a stable, healthy, united country. And the text we read gives some suggestions for what the people of God can do to further reconciliation in our own lives and also to spread it around to others. And the first is this, beware the danger of a single story. And this is the title of one of my favorite TED Talks by a Nigerian woman named Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. And, and her point, one of her points is whether it's in conflict between people or races, there's more than one story going on, always. And, and reconciliation can't happen unless you kind of hear all the perspectives. Jesus says, if you're in worship and remember that your brother or sister has something against you, go reconcile. So in another place, he talks about if you're in worship and you remember that you have something against someone else, you're mad at someone. This is if someone's upset with you. In other words, the first step in reconciliation is to realize it begins with us. I have a part in this conflict. I am not innocent. 
So if for the last few minutes you've been thinking, man, I wish so-and-so could hear this because they need, need to reconcile with me, right? Well, there you go again, right? Jesus says it starts with you. It starts with me. So pray, Jesus, show me where I need to be reconciled and show me my part of that conflict. Because when both sides own their part, healing is almost inevitable. But getting both sides to that point, oh my goodness, to really own their part, that is a miracle. So let me give you five steps to reconciliation. So this is, these are sub-points, and I know that's kind of confusing, but you'll follow along. First, here's how you reconcile with someone. You say, here's what I've done to hurt you. And the thing here is you can't minimize this. You can't downplay this. You, you, you can't pull your punches. You, gotta, you don't say things like, I've been a little difficult lately. Right? No, that doesn't get you to the point where you have to reconcile. You have to say things like, I lashed out in anger that was meant to demean you. You got to get brutally honest. That's the first thing. Second, here's how I think that made you feel. Three, here's how I feel about hurting you. Four, did I leave anything out? That one's hard. And you got to listen. And then five, will you forgive me? Not, I'm sorry, because that keeps you in the driver's seat, but will you forgive me makes you more vulnerable. And you can't minimize any of these things. Brutal honesty is required. Because reconciliation begins when blame shifting ends. Now, sometimes the other person will not reciprocate. That's okay. By going through these five steps, you can at least let go of the bitterness in your heart. And this works interpersonally between two people, but it also works around politics, around race, around all of it. There's more than one story. For instance, on the one hand, in our country, we have made huge strides against racism. On the other hand, it still exists. And sadly, polls show that for a lot of white Americans, they're not acknowledging that. For a lot of white people, our narrative is racism was really bad, especially in the South, but we elected a black president. It's better now. Claims of racism are overstated. But there are all kinds of examples in the world and some that I have given you that it's not completely gone. Like African Americans being asked for ID to write a check in the store when white people are not asked the same thing. That's the Northwest, guys. That's not the South. That's right here. A mom of an African American son told me that recently they upgraded their, uh, their cable and that came with a new security system. But she hasn't activated it because what if her son forgets his key and tries to get into the house some other way? A black teenage male, possibly wearing a hoodie, trying to get into the house in a mostly white neighborhood. And she said, I don't even think the cops or my neighbors are racist. It's just something that I have to think about. See, her story is different than mine. She has to think about that. I don't. More than one story. Racism is still with us. Let me put it to you this way. Why do we call it a cow when it's in the field, but beef when it's on the table? This will connect to the sermon, I promise. Some of you are like, whoa, we were just moved into agriculture, right? Why do we call it pig in the field and pork on the table? Well, it's because a thousand years ago, a guy named Billy got in a fight with his cousin, and so he went over and conquered his cousin's country, you know, as you do, and he took it over. And Billy, a.k.a. William the Conqueror from France, became king of England and brought all of his friends. So for over a hundred years, the kings and aristocracy of England spoke only French. So French became the language of the ruling elite and Anglo-Saxon the language of the peasants. So French-sounding words became associated with upper class and culture and manners. So we use the Anglo-Saxon word cow when it's eating grass, but the word beef, or as the French like to say, boeuf, when we're eating it. Anything earthy comes from the Anglo-Saxon. Eat, drink, love, fight, but to be amorous sounds Frenchified, right? <laughs> 
and therefore more sophisticated, so we think. That's how strong culture is. A guy gets in a fight with his cousin a thousand years ago, and the effects are still with us today. So do you really think that Jim Crow racism, which was alive and well within the living memory of people in this room, is really gone? For that matter, my grandparents knew Civil War veterans. That's how close it is. And healing in our country starts when those of us who are white start admitting there's more than one story going on here. And of course, reciprocated, of course. But I think it starts with us. Second, to reconcile, don't assault people's character when you disagree with them, which I know is like, well, duh, but we're not doing it. Right? So Jesus says, you have heard it said, you shall not murder. But I tell you, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. So stop saying that, you guys. <laughs> and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, that word raka means nothingness, as in you're nothing. And it's akin to murder because it's a way of wiping out someone's personhood. Now, think about social media for a minute, especially Facebook. Anyone saying you fool to people on social media lately? Have you ever seen that? Right? Rather than disagreeing respectfully about policy, there's all kinds of smug, eye-rolling, condescending assaults on character. Oh, those, those conservatives are so greedy, they hate poor people. Well, maybe some, but most care deeply about the poor. They just think that the private sector is more effective in dealing with it. Right? Oh, those liberals, they hate our country, they're traitors. Well, maybe some hate our country, most deeply love our country. The people of God are called to do better. We can do better. Besides, think of it this way. When someone lashes out at you or mocks you, does that change your opinion about something? Right? Are you like, oh, now that you've demeaned me, I totally see it your way. Right? No, all those kinds of arguments do is give people already on your side that comforting, warm feeling of moral smugness. But here's the thing. Convincing the already convinced is no victory. Convincing the already convinced is no victory. It's just more persuasive when we're respectful. And yes, there are people who are truly dangerous, and yes, they have to be dealt with and all of that, but even then we do it respectfully. And most of the people we deal with are not dangerous or evil. They just disagree with us. And if you still feel like the other side deserves to be blasted, could you at least do Christianity a favor and say the following? I know Jesus calls me to reconciliation, but I don't want to do it. That at least gets Jesus off the hook for your bad behavior. And I have to do this all the time with all kinds of stuff. I have to go, you know what, I know Jesus wants me to do this, but I don't want to. But at least by being honest about that, over time I start to think, well, maybe I need to change. And then I do. Which brings me to my third suggestion. Do a ruthless moral inventory on ourselves. In the Bible, the Apostle Paul says, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. See, we are commissioned by God to bring reconciliation. And that starts by realizing that Jesus had to die for my sins the same way he died to die for yours and those liberals and those conservatives and all of that, which means you and me, we are on the same level. Several weeks ago, I preached on patience, and I mentioned how slowness really kind of irritates me. Well, this week I was driving down Bellevue Way, and the guy behind me honked. And I was indignant, right? And I looked in my mirror, and he was going like this, like, speed it up. And I was like, how dare you honk at me? And I, I'm going, and then I looked at my speedometer, 20 in a 35-mile-an-hour zone. <laughs> right, so the week I preach on patience, I'm plagued with slow people. And the week I preach on reconciliation, I'm the slowpoke in need of grace. And by the way, several of you have said to me in the last couple of weeks that on occasion, you've noticed me driving behind you, and I don't recognize you, and you have deliberately driven slowly to see what I would do. 
Now, is that nice? Some of you have heard me tell this story of how after my first wife and I divorced, I blamed her for everything. She left me. I was completely innocent. That was my story. I stick into it. And we'd still speak from time to time, and we'd get in fights about who was more responsible for the divorce. And we would actually assign percentages of blame. So she'd say, well, maybe I was 40% responsible, but you were 60% responsible. And I'd say, no, at most I was 49% responsible. 49%, that's my final offer, right? Well, one day we were doing this, and suddenly I just blurted out, 50%, 60%, I don't know. All I know is that I am 100% responsible for what I am responsible for. And for that, will you forgive me? And as soon as it was out of my mouth, I thought, that, that, that sounds better. Stick with that. Right? And she actually never did forgive me, really. But suddenly I did not see her as the villain and me the innocent victim. I saw us both as sinners for whom Christ died. And I realized that I had neglected her for my career. I had left her lonely and needing someone else. There was more than one story. And it was one of the most sacred moments of my life. And it was the last time I was ever angry at her. Again, honest, I was free. Beware the danger of a single story. Disagree respectfully. Do a ruthless moral inventory. And then finally, aggressively pursue hearing the other side. Interpersonally, that means asking the other person you're in conflict with, man, tell me your side of the story. Let me hear it. And praying through the whole thing, God, show me my part in this. Show me how I have contributed. When it comes to politics, read well-reasoned arguments from the other side of you. Not the stupid arguments, the, the, the smart ones. Not to change your mind completely, but at least understand the complexities and that the other side always has a few good points, always. And that will deepen your own worldview and make it more sophisticated. When it comes to race, join the Bible study we're doing on racial reconciliation starting on Thursday. There's also a summer book list about race, which we'll post on the transcript of this sermon in a couple of days. And this is so crucial in our polarized country right now. Do you know, do you know that Google, Facebook, Bing, all of them track your online activity and, and they only give you what they think you want to hear? So if you and I Google Black Lives Matter, we're going to get different res results. Right? based on what Google or Facebook or any of them thinks we want to hear based on our past activity, which means we are all living in an echo chamber of our own opinions constantly reflected back to us. How does a democracy survive that? We can push against that by listening to the other side, and you will have a more sophisticated worldview, and we'll have a better culture. I saw an interview with an African-American woman named Vonda who grew up in a predominantly black neighborhood, and the little contact she had with white people was mostly pretty negative, especially police, who some of the white officers in her neighborhood were disrespectful to the people who lived there, uh, even when they weren't doing anything wrong. Some used excessive force when arresting people. And Vonda says she now knows that most cops are not that way, uh, but, uh, but back then, that was her perception. And she said, I never thought I could like a white person. But then she met Jesus, and he opened up her heart, and she moved out of that neighborhood and began to meet white people who did not fit her single story about white people. They were nice to her. Well, then one day she met a man named Brandon who was white, and she felt kind of attracted to him. And she said, I always thought that my husband would be over six feet tall with dark chocolate skin, but in prayer, she just kept hearing God say, nope, it's him, it's him. And she kept saying, but God, he's white, and he's only 5'10". I'm 5'10". What's wrong with that? 
But God just kept saying, it's him. No, I'm doing something here. It's him. But then Brandon's grandmother wrote a letter to Brandon telling him not to date Vonda because she was black, and that would cause all kinds of problems. And if they got married, she wouldn't be at the wedding. And Brandon's father, who was a pastor, felt the same way. And Vonda said that hurt the most because he was a pastor representing Jesus and yet didn't think that she was good enough for his son because she was black. But they kept dating. And over time, Brandon's father and grandmother got to know Vonda, and they began to see all the awesome things in her. They got rid of their single story about black people. And then one day in prayer, Jesus just convicted Brandon's father and said, I am giving you a gift in Vonda, but you are not accepting my gift. And Vonda said, so then he and I had a come to Jesus meeting, just the two of us. And he asked forgiveness, and they were reconciled, and now he calls her daughter. And then months later, the grandmother also tearfully apologized, grabbed Vonda's hands and said, I hope someday you will be able to forgive me and call me grandma. And Vonda ended her interview by saying this, quote, I am extremely grateful that God interrupted my life and that I get to love people I never thought I could love and remove those prejudices I had that would have separated me from all of this love around me. Now, all that took time. It didn't happen overnight. But all sides got rid of their single narrative, confessed their own sins, treated each other not as categories or social issues to be solved, but as people, and found not only reconciliation and healing, but love and joy. Jesus was at work in all of that to bring healing all the way around. So where can you reconcile? And how can you be part of the ministry of reconciliation where you live, work, play, or learn? And how can, how can you listen to God and have him move you in those directions? Because this is a non-negotiable for God's people. God has given us the ministry of reconciliation in our schools, in our workplaces, in our families, in our friends, country, need it. And we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to bring us. This should be our specialty. As I remind you over and over again, historically, the early church was composed of Jews and Gentiles who had hated each other for centuries but started loving each other. Abolition, civil rights, all led by Christians. The work of Jesus is atonement, at one minute. And we cannot say we follow him and not be about his reconciling work between us and another person, between races, classes, politics, we can show our world a different way. And Bell Press, I know you want to be part of that because you always want to be part of doing cool things for Jesus. So as Joshua said to the people of Israel, choose ye this day whom you will serve, the spirit of our age that divides and excludes or the Holy Spirit of Jesus that unites. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Reconciliation is the fuel of the kingdom. So let's let Jesus heal us heal our families, our schools, our workplaces, heal our land. So Jesus, thank you that you are about this work of bringing together what the world puts apart. And Lord, we ask that you would give us eyes to see where we can bring your reconciling power in our lives. Open our eyes to where we may need to own some stuff, God. Help us to ask forgiveness. Help us to spread healing and reconciliation all around and heal our divided land. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.